Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with the Double L team, Lyle and... Lawson. And it is Monday morning. A new week has begun full of opportunity. That's right. That's we have right. we have the blessing of being able to serve God for this coming week. We can make plans as to how we are going to serve God. We have a great week in front of us. Mm. We're we're living. We're we are alive. God we're is on His throne. He talking. rules in heaven. Amen. He rules on earth. He rules in my heart. <laughs> what is there not to be thankful for Amen. this morning? Amen. You know what there is to be thankful for? What? Lyle, look outside. What? It's, it's cloudy. Yes. There's, it's going to rain this afternoon. No. This is this, this is, is amazing. What, this is, is like the best thing ever. No. You know what that means? You know what happens? It's going to rain tomorrow and the next day as well. Yes. You know why that's good? Because uh, then it wets my motorbike track in the backyard and I can ride without making <laughs> dust. <laughs> it's like the best. I'm like, I've been checking the weather because it hasn't rained here in like a week and a half. I've been checking the weather like every single day. So has your dad been complaining about the thick layer of dust on his car every morning? No, no, no. Because so this is the good thing. If there's no breeze, because my motorbike track's like in amongst the trees, like it's yes. really tightly packed, it just stays there. Yes. But if there's like there was a decent breeze one day and I did one lap and I can just see all the dust going not up to our house but up to the neighbor's <laughs> house after like one lap and I'm like okay never mind because <laughs> it's just like you, you you would never want to do that like cause neighbors no issues because with- you know they've got their wet. Laundry on the yeah, line, that's right. and it just gets on their cars and their house. So, but it's gonna rain, Lyle. Yes, this is amazing news. You know, normally it's amazing news because food is going to grow. Yeah, that's that's true too. I but guess. for you, it's amazing news because it's going to be better for the motorbike. <laughs> that's right. You have a very unique way. Yeah, of that, that, I, I, I live. Other in. people are looking at it as you as amazing news because well, they need to fill up their dams, or the creek needs water in it, or. You know, their tanks are running dry and they need That's some right. drinking water. It's blessing everyone, including myself. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Absolutely. What's happening in the world of positively different news this morning, Lawson? Oh, all kinds of wild things. I think I'm, I've got a bit of a focus this morning on cool things that are doing really great things for people. Um, but also kind of, again, some negative positive news that I might bring up later. Um, firstly, hey, I read this story. It was a report from the aftermath of Hurricane Ida. And you know which place was the, like, which area in terms of being hit the hardest by Ida was the least affected? No. New Orleans. Well, that's positive. That is positive. And that's because... Uh, Very positive. They're below sea level, so... Th- that's right. It's like there was no catastrophic flooding in New-, New Orleans at all. And this is because of, essentially, the success of the 1.8 mile long, $1.3 billion worth of... um levy that they've built on the river there. So oh, okay. so essentially like since, you know, when they um had Hurricane Katrina, the levy broke. Yes. And it was cat- like a catastrophe and over thousands of people died and it was the worst thing ever. So they've put a massive amount of money, 1.3 billion dollars into building a 1.8 mile long wall, which is a very expensive wall, a very expensive levy and it worked completely how they wanted to the levees didn't break they held strong their filtering system you know to to drain out water worked perfectly too and um you know as as we know as we've seen from um the statistics and whatnot like uh 
Ida was just as fierce as Katrina, you know, of a hurricane. Um, and it cost, you know, the states where it affected, like, the, the, the money and damages and whatnot was huge. Um, but the loss of lives were significantly lower. Oh, minimal compared to Katrina. Yeah. Just tiny, and yeah, a big part of that is the fact that hey, this levy that they've you know that was designed by the U.S. government, uh, sorry, um, the U.S. Army Corps engineers, like this you know just epic you know levy um, held. That's fantastic news. It's interesting when I was uh, in New Orleans in '92. Uh, I remember you know walking down to the end of the street of the place where I was staying, and you've got this you know this concrete wall going along the side of the river. And it just looked like a canal, looked like a big canal because it mm. sort of had concrete on either side of it. And it's like, okay, somebody's dug a canal through here and they've lined the canal with concrete because that's just what it looked like. Mm. And, of course, I go back, silly me, um, to the house where I was staying. I was young and foolish at the time and talked about the big canal down the end of the street. And like, yeah, that's the Mississippi River. <laughs> <laughs> One of the greatest rivers in the world. <laughs> hey, that's our river. <laughs> but, you know, there is another solution that they could have come up with for New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Not build it below sea level in the first place. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But And this is the thing. It's necessitated, like, the one in New Orleans specifically um, didn't break, but also the other 192 uh, miles of levees and flood walls that are all, you know, through Louisiana and... And all along the Mississippi River that have been built by Katrina um, that have cost a total of $14.5 billion, um, they've all just done their job. So I feel like this is a real win, like, for the for the people and, you know, for the, like, you know, for, like, $14.5 billion is a huge investment to save people's lives. Yes. And it's paid off. Yes. Praise God. Like, I, I just read that this morning. I was like... Good for them. Like until that's... the devil comes along and says, "Yeah, I see your, I see your <laughs> category five hurricane uh, levy banks. Let me yeah. bring you a category six one." <laughs> Yikes! Well, I guess, I guess we will see. You know, I'm talking big talk at the moment. There's lots of, you know, the Titanic was the unsinkable ship. Yeah, and so I guess mm. we just need to, and Ooh. and if we see the statistics, and if we read the Bible, mm-hmm. and we can see that these mm-hmm. um, events are just increasing as we get closer and closer to the end of time. I guess we'll see when the next hurricane comes along that's stronger. Um, will it hold? Uh, well, we, we hope shall so. See. We shall see. We Let's pray that it does. All right, oi! I've got this other story that it, it involves your favorite thing. Wow. Oh, so so okay, so it involves Africa. Yes. Bicycles. Right. A river. Mm. And hydroelectric power. Okay, hydroelectric power. Up until there, I was like, what's this got to do with my favourite thing? But I am a huge fan of hydroelectric power. Yeah, yeah. So so basically, this guy in Malawi, his name is um, Colored Nikoski. Okay, which is, no, sorry, Nikosi. I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's one of those that guy. African names that are like kind of do- don't really have many vowels in it. Maybe it's supposed to have a click in it. You Colored Nikosi. <laughs> has built um, an electricity, like a hydroelectric pump um, and grid out of a corn shelling machine and like a, a an energy converter from a vending machine that is currently powering 2,000 homes in Malawi. Wow. Now, Malawi is an area where 11% of the population have access to electricity. Yes. Like, it's incredibly poor, uh-huh. incredibly remote. There's, like, no, like, there is very limited permanent electricity there. Like, you'll only find power stations powering places in the capital city, and that's it. So, anyone who lives outside of that, like, you're talking, they're living in mud huts and straw huts, and that that's it. Dude, this guy has, again, this dude, 
it's just been super interested in, oh man, how can I get power to my people? How can I invent something? How can I just throw all this junk together? So he just took some random junk that was laying Literally. around the place and now he's powering 2,000 people with electricity. Yes. Yes. That's 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 pretty special and right he's, there. He's already made up um, plans to put another turbine down the river and so that he can power another 2,000 homes. And he's just, dude, this guy's just killing it. Um, and the the most epic part about this, he charges people for electricity. He charges them like two dollars a month. Yeah, well, you wouldn't really, aff- you wouldn't really afford more than that in, yeah. in a country like that. You know, most people might be earning a dollar a day or fifty cents a day or something yeah. like that. So yeah. that's that's pretty reasonable. But literally, like, it's going to maintenance costs, and that's it. The guy's just like, oh well. Yeah, and the, it is the one thing that sort of went through my mind when I heard the design. I'm like, this is really good. I wonder what the maintenance costs of it are. Mm. You know, because when you're building something out of scrap. Out of junk, yeah. Out of junk, yeah. What's the longevity of it, you know? You want some, You want to build something here. I mean, at least he's got a prototype and he's got a design and maybe somebody can come in and now build one that will last for 50, 60, 100 yeah. years uh, without needing extensive maintenance. But, um, yeah, more power to it. Mm. Go, go Dude, this guy. Yeah, like imagine it's just like he, he's he, this guy himself. Like he is not an electric company. He's just some random dude from Malawi who was like, I'm going to chuck a turbine in a river and power like 2,000 homes. Good for him. Like I'm, I, I'm stoked. Like, oh, it's so good to read. And I feel like these are the solutions going forward that are like, this could be a real model for the rest of Africa as well. Um, of, of, and, and obviously people have been trying to get in there providing solar power and all the different things. Um, but yeah, just these really DIY off the grid solutions where they don't necessarily have to rely on big companies. That so he's got his own electricity company and just quick calculation there, he'd be earning about $133 a day. Yep. Which is a lot of money. He's the Malawi. richest man in Malawi. <laughs> <laughs> like, go this guy. Go this guy. Okay. Oh, final story. I just want to talk about this briefly because uh, it's very interesting. So coming up is COP26. This is the global climate summit that's put on by the United Nations, which has a uh, you know reputation for being good. Many people think that it's, it's not so good because, as particularly from the maybe from the um, the prophetic perspective, they're like all oh, these countries coming together to you know make decisions about what the world should do about climate and rules and you know you got people. There are going some things along. we need to come together on, guys. Yeah, but you know the, the Queen Elizabeth and the Popes and all those guys getting together and, and all leaders of nations. It's usually a thirty thousand person event, but. 26 of the poorest countries on the group of countries who get invited probably won't be able to attend because of lockdowns in the UK because they'll have to, when they go into the UK, they'll have to do a two-week mandatory quarantine and they can't afford it. So, whoa, wow. heavy, heavy stuff there. I guess they're going to have to make decisions. Is it is it worth including these people at the tables on these decisions? You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Lyle, what's happening? Okay, let's talk about food addiction. 15 to 20% of the population in Australia suffer from food addiction, um, which is also linked to anxiety and depression. And so these are people who eat more than what they intend to or feel is good for them to eat. Mm. And uh, so the University of Newcastle is looking for volunteers. So, hey, 
This might be something that oh, this you is... as a listener can volunteer for. Dude, I can do it. Let's it's go. Right. I want to eat food. <laughs> yeah, it's not volunteering to eat food. It's volunteering to eat less food. Oh, dude, I'll do that as well. Let's go. All right, all right. Okay, so here's what they're looking for. They're looking for adults who habitually overeat, uh, who crave certain foods, um, and have gone through repeated unsuccessful attempts to cure their food addiction. Now, these people will be divided into, once they get their, their, their groups together, they're going to have several different groups and offer them several different solutions. Um, one solution that they that will be offered is uh, online and telehealth sessions, uh, group support, a workbook, a website, you know, all those kind of things. You know, the typical kind of standard kind of therapies, I guess, that you provide over a six-month period. There will be a control group who will get nothing. But with the control group, after the six months is up, then you will get the best of what's available. So they're not going to leave you just sort of... Okay. Out in the cold altogether. Wait, so so I could join this study in the control group. Yes. And do nothing. And do nothing for six months. And then in six months, you've got a whole bunch of stuff to do. But what if in that six months, you just made the personal decision, oh, oh I'm going to diet and exercise? They tell you not to do that? No, no, I don't think. I think because you're part of the control group, they want to actually, I, I would suspect that they want to actually have just, this is how society lives. Yeah. So, so you would have, you know, you're you're always going to have aberrations within a control group, and you need to have those aberrations, I think, to create a correct view of society. Oh, I want to ruin this study. You know how I'm going to do it? How's that? So I'm going to get everyone in the control group. I'm going to convince them to all <laughs> like work out, go on a health and, kick. and go on a massive health kick, like literally every single person, and then not tell them. Lawson, you are a devious person. <laughs> then, we are trying to solve problems in our society. And then we get to the end of the study, and they're like, "Wait, wait, it's 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 more healthy and better for you to do nothing." <laughs> see these guys. See what I would find interesting, and I'd love to run this past uh, David Hauk is. How much it would change the results if they had a third group that had all of the counselling and so forth available, but from a spiritual perspective, mm. because he has consistently shown research where, when it comes to addiction, if you take the spiritual aspect out of it, the programs don't work. Yeah, that's why they're very temporary. Like Alcoholics Anonymous is like so successful today, and it's only successful because you can get secular versions of your twelve-step program, but they don't work. They don't work. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Okay, it's a new study coming out um, in relationship to healthy alcohol, which is not. <laughs> okay, so alcohol. this um, this oxymoron. Yes, this comes from the uh, Australian Cancer Council. Mm. Uh, oh. There are a whole bunch of claims out there by various you know alcohol products that they are healthier, that they are cleaner, that they are carbohydrate free, that they are guilt free. They've got less sugar in them. You know, whatever else it might be. And the Australian Cancer Council has found that all, found that all of these claims are entirely false. Yeah, well, they analysed 144 products that were spruiking themselves as being healthier than the average alcohol uh, alcoholic beverage that is out there, and found that universally they are pulling your leg. You know, it's so interesting. Like, we're such a cancer-sensitive country in Australia, you know, being where first world developed, like, that's one of our bigger killers, um, and that we're super, like, sensitive and sympathetic about. I'm like, oh, well, you know what? Like, 
they also say you should stop drinking alcohol. And I wish people would listen because, you know. It's Western countries suffer from lifestyle diseases. It's as simple as that. Mm. You know, your poorer countries, they don't drink alcohol because they can't afford to. Yeah, that's right. And then they're trying to put rice on their table. You're going to go and spend your money on alcohol when you're struggling to find rice. Dude, then they have to, like, go out in the field all day. They can't do that drunk. Like, yeah. I mean, this is the bottom of the bottom. You come up one level from there and you've got massive alcohol problems. Mm. There's no question about that in in really poverty-stricken countries. Yeah, that's right. But anyway, uh, where were we up to? We've got to remember that 57% of the population of the world never drinks alcohol. Mm. That's the majority of our world. Never drinks alcohol. Mm. Why not join the majority? Okay. (laughs) Uh, They found that most of the uh, products had full-strength alcohol in them. One-third of them had no nutritional information available whatsoever at all. So they were like, yeah, we're healthier, and we won't tell you how. (laughs) Um, They pointed out that alcohol remains a first-rate carcinogen, so it's right up there with nicotine and asbestos and all that kind of stuff. Wow. Uh, And uh, they, they stated that a minor difference in sugar content is misleading, is irrelevant to the discussion, and is distracting because it really has no significant impact on the health of the product, which is just mm. not healthy at all. There's yeah. no so, and this is what they said. There is no healthy alcohol product. Yeah. doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. All alcohol is bad for you. All alcohol is carcinogenic. All of it will kill you. Yeah. Just as the Bible said, you know, like three and a half thousand years ago. <laughs> Want to throw that in there? Okay, so the uh, Evangelical Lutheran Lutheran Church in the United States, uh, about 10 years ago they decided to go super woke and change a lot of their theology in relationship to sexuality, Mm. um, accepting same-sex marriage, that's where it started, then same-sex clergy, uh, and now they have just um, ordained their first uh, transgender bishop who goes by the name Megan Roher. Um, this person will be in charge of 65 synods and 200 congregations. They use the pronoun they. Okay. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about this is that ever since the Evangelical Lutheran Church in the United States started to go woke, their membership literally fell off the edge of a cliff. Mm -hmm. In 10 years... In just 10 years, they have lost a quarter of their membership. Yep. That is massive. That's like more than a million members just wiped out. Now, you would you would think that if you were in charge of a church and your church was you know, bubbling along and doing its thing and suddenly you're like, okay, let's go woke. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you send your church down a woke path, the membership falls off the edge of a cliff that you would actually go, Maybe that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not what God wanted us to do. Yeah. Maybe that was not the Holy Spirit's leading. But instead of doing so, what are they doing? Doubling down and Dude. let's just go harder at it. It's so it's so much because of pride. Like it's it's just like because every single church that has done this has fallen off a cliff. Like we have the um we have the example in Australia of like the Uniting Church. We do. And we it's do. like you know what's so interesting. And this is why why it's so easy to be able to rent a Uniting Church building is because. They're not really been used for much. <laughs> yeah. Dude, you know what's so interesting, though? I'm like, because recently, like, there was the big blow up within the Catholic Church of, like, they ultimately made the decision that, like, God can't bless sin. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, we're not going to, or like, we're not going to 
blessed. They're not going to change. Their, they're not going to change their doctrine in relationship to their beliefs about what the Bible says. That's right. That's right. And has their membership fallen off a cliff around not the world? Like these guys? No. Like no, like it has. Especially not like these guys. One of the bishops uh, um, observed that the church has become the churches. The, the, the churches have been turned into museums, theaters, political action committees, and Sunday morning clubs. Oh, that's so cringe. It is. That's so... That's like... Awful. That's tough. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Indeed. We're joining us on the phone this morning for a regular monthly update uh, from Voice of the Martyrs is Etienne McClintock. Etienne, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lyle. Good morning, Lawson. And good morning to your dear listener out there as well. Etienne, one of the things that uh, really staggers me is, you know, we get to talk once a month. The thing that the thing that just blows my mind is how much the world can change mm. in just one month, from when we last spoke until when we spoke now. Particularly in relationship to, you know, persecution around the world. I mean, hey, we've got the whole thing happening in Afghanistan. We didn't even have that to talk about last month, but you know that now it is it is something that is taking place. What are some of the major events that you've seen taking place? Uh, over the last month, Etienne? Well, look, persecution continues, and it just seems to be growing and escalating in so many countries. There's just this hostility towards the Christian worldview and an antagonism towards, you know, what the Bible teaches. But we don't only see that in countries that are persecuting countries or countries that are on our watch list. We also see this happening in the West, and we just see that the uh, cultural Marxism which actually grew out of atheism, if you go back to the French Revolution, who actually makes war with God's two witnesses, which is the Old and New Testament. We just see that antagonism continues. You know, from that atheism grew uh, Marxism. Now, Karl Marx and Engels uh, wrote the, the Communist Manifesto. From there, it morphed finally you know, uh, into cultural Marxism, and that attack continues. Now, we know as we look at prophecy, finally they will actually give, they will succumb to a, another power, but it actually won't be a good power necessarily. It will appear to be a good power, and the whole world will be deceived by it, but it will actually be apostate Christianity. And that's the thing we've got to be worried about. But like you rightly said, things can change so quickly. I mean, no one expected Afghanistan to fall back into the hands of the Taliban in a matter of a few days when the Americans started withdrawing. I mean, that's been a terrible debacle, and of course that's been a big focus of our work just in the last, uh, the last four weeks or so. Mm. Um, I can just give you a bit of an overview of Afghanistan if you want. Yeah, um, I would love to have it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. Christianity actually uh, reached Afghanistan around the second century AD. Um, but today there are actually no church buildings. Uh, so there's cultural and religious opposition to the gospel there. And also su- significant security issues. Even when they had the previous regime in place there that was actually supported by the Americans, there were great challenges. Um, for mission efforts, even in central the Central Asian nations around it as well, of course. Uh, we have uh, a book available at the moment. If you go to vom.com.au and you go to subscribe, if you subscribe to our newsletter, you'll actually get a book, a free book will be uh, mailed out to you called Tragedy in Kabul. And Dr. Anneli Hunewald and her husband and two children went there as missionaries from South Africa uh, just to spread the gospel. And one day there was an attack while she was busy working and uh, they were talking because of their, um, you know, the, the, the spread of the gospel and uh, establishing Christianity in that area. And both her husband and her two children were, were martyred. 
uh, that particular day. So that book's available for free if people want to go to vom.com.au. But uh, most Afghans actually have never heard the gospel. They don't know a Christian. Uh, all of them have been indoctrinated to follow Muhammad's teachings without question. And, you know, radical Islam, and then also another layer of violent tribal political activity has made it very difficult and dangerous for Christians to practice their faith. And uh, funny enough, though, you know, under those circumstances where people do know other Christians, there's a special unity amongst them, especially expats who've gone in there and labored in Afghanistan. That, of course, has become very, very dangerous, and a lot of them have had to leave. Um, church growth has been very slow. There's, there's more than 40 unique people groups in Afghanistan. But in the northern area, there's been significant Christian growth that's occurred amongst the Hazari people. So if you look at the religious uh, landscape in Afghanistan, 99.8% of Afghans are Muslims. We have 90% are Sunni, and then you've got about 10% that are Shiite. Uh, so as far as who persecutes who, both local, national governments are highly antagonistic towards Christians. Of course, um, even before the Taliban has take over, taken over the regime there, uh, they were targeting Christians already. Also, ISIS were very active there. And uh, then on top of that, of course, you also have believers there being persecuted by their families, their friends, and their communities when they actually leave um, Islam and become Christians. So Afghans, before the uh, regime shift, couldn't even worship openly. Uh, they had to worship in homes or just find some really small venues, and they wouldn't obviously be able to tell what they were doing at the venue. Evangelism was forbidden in their country. Of course, it still is now, even more so. And Christians and seekers were uh, highly secretive about their faith or interest in Christianity. And uh, there'd been a surge of arrests in the past decade of Christians. There'd been beatings, there'd been tortures, been kidnappings. And that was basically just routine for Christians in Afghanistan. But the, interestingly enough, uh, the Afghan church has continued to grow, although at times there's been waves of Christians who've moved into neighboring countries just so they can worship freely and openly. About a small number of Christians every year, even in the lead up to this regime change, um, were martyred for their faith. Uh, but the death generally occurred even without public knowledge. It was just a secret, a secret death. Uh, imprisonment is not common, but few of them have been imprisoned. And then, of course, if there's no churches and there's no Christian bookstores in Afghanistan, it's very difficult to get hold of a Bible. And uh, only through the underground ministry network can you get your hands in a Bible. Uh, quite often, it's actually in digital format because, of course, it's easier to transport and move around. But um, owning one is extremely dangerous. And uh, most believers actually don't have their own Bible. So online Bibles, you know, using their cell phones and that and other digital formats are extremely helpful to them. The interesting thing is, you know, with some of the different languages there and the common language, uh, a lot of Bibles aren't available in the language of the people. So there's some work underway at the moment just to get the, the Bible into their own languages. So most of the martyrs have been, we've been active there for a while, you know, uh, distributing Bibles, uh, even TV and radio broadcasts. It's uh, very hard sometimes to jam uh, radio broadcast signals. And if they do, we just find another signal. Um, discipleship training, frontline support and other practical and spiritual assistance. So looking at the latest developments, um, it only took about a week for the Taliban to retake Afghanistan after the withdrawal of the U.S. I mean, you can see when uh, the country is 99.8% Islamic, that that Islamic regime which claims to fully adhere to, uh, you know, the uh, Muslim teachings and the Quran, uh, there wouldn't be a lot of opposition to it. And really the other government was really just propped up by the Americans there. 
But uh, Christians have become the special target of the Taliban. Uh, they have an identity register there for people, and on that register, uh, they also would identify who are Christians and who are Muslims and so forth. And of course, a lot of the Christians there were background Muslim believers. And uh, we then started working with some of the church leaders there to extract them when this happened because their lives were at risk. They went into a deep hiding, some of them. Some of them from the north, you know, had to come and uh, they had to get past a number of checkpoints, which was almost a miracle in itself, just to try and get out of the country. Uh, others tried other routes, but a lot of the regular border passages were actually closed. Um, finally, when they did get to Kabul, they had to remain in hiding until we could actually get them to the international airport. Um, we were considering a number of options, options trying to extract these people because they basically, if they discovered they did, they'll, they'll be executed. And, uh, you know, some of them had been traveling without water and without food for a number of days. Some of the kids were, were becoming very sick. It was just a horrible, horrible situation. And miraculously, we were able to get, uh, although only 10 at, in the initial stages, 10 people on a plane and out. And shortly after that, you had those two massive bomb blasts that actually went off in, in Afghanistan. So uh, you have many obstacles to go through. I mean, you saw the tarmac, and if anybody watched the news or uh, read the news online, you saw those photos with the tarmac crowded with people, people trying to get on the planes, getting on the landing gear. And even some, when the plane had taken off, they're still hanging on and are falling to their death. So horrible, horrible scenes. But for those who remained in Afghanistan, you know, if, uh, if they uh, were just living in Kabul and other areas, if they had a daughter over the age of 15, and they were unmarried, they had to register them with the Taliban. They'd actually be marked and put on the homes. And that included even widows under the age of 45. Uh, in a sense, they become the property of the Taliban, and they would be married off to fighters and even be used as trophy wives in, in some instances. But, you know, as we got these people through... Sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Here you go. Now, as we got these people through the checkpoints, there were others that we wouldn't, weren't able to get. And uh, just uh, just leading up to this weekend, there were six planes on the tarmac that weren't being, weren't able to take off. And, of course, the Americans are blaming the Taliban. And then the Taliban are blaming the Americans. Uh, Al, the people on the ground are saying that, you know, some of the holdup is just red tape in other countries. So it's been very, very difficult. Um, but still a very dangerous place. I mean, those two bomb blasts killed, what, about 70 civilians and uh, around 60 Americans. It's been really, really tough for Christians there. So our work now is focusing on those who have remained. There may be some that may still be able to get out of the country, but uh, those who remain, and of course, very difficult to identify those. Just simply when people are in hiding, I mean, how do you discover their location? So we found Christians in a number of locations now, uh, about 125 we've identified, who are we now helping just with the food and water, just basic necessities. And as things started returning back to normal, even the flow of money started going back into the country, and we were even able to get some money to them so they can actually buy some necessities for themselves. Etienne, one of the reports that we've been hearing is that the United States has been more interested in getting out um, Afghanis who were politically uh, non-aligned with the Taliban than they were interested in getting out Christian refugees whose lives were at stake because of their faith. Have you seen any evidence of that? Is uh, is this something that is actually going on? Is there more of a focus on getting out the translators and you know other people that have worked with the US uh, military organisation than there has been on Christian refugees? We've seen reports as well that would suggest that those that were associated with the previous regime uh, or were supporters of the U.S. or the translators or did some work for them, those Afghanis have been the ones that have been trying to get out. 
But look, there's been more people wanting to leave than they had actually had transportation out. And the latest reports suggest that there are still possibly around 500 Americans who are in Afghanistan and they're trapped there and they can't leave at the moment. And it's just making life very, very, very difficult for them. But uh, yeah, look, the Christians have not been the focus. We've we've um, we've been working with a number of countries who've been willing to take them. I mean, some uh, uh, surprises have come to us. I mean, countries like Italy have put their hand up. I know Australia has also put their hand up to help refugees in general. Uh, they weren't specifically Christian, but we have had some people in government lobby uh, our local, well, federal government here uh, to make sure that we can provide, uh, you know, visas and temporary visas and process these people here if we can get them to Australia. There's also been reports come through that missionaries, foreign missionaries who have been operating in Afghanistan have been left to, you know, hang out to dry, so to speak, um, almost an attitude of, you know, you were a fool to go there in the first place, we're not going to exert any effort to get you out of the country, even though you are a citizen of the United States or of some other Western country. Um, have you been able to confirm any of those reports? Yes, that has been the case as well. There are some of them that have to leave, some of them have gone into deep hiding. Uh, look, uh, some people, if they are discovered, they will be get executed straight away. There's, for example, a, a judge, a Christian lady judge in Afghanistan under the, the previous regime who'd obviously put a number of uh, Taliban people in prison. And she's gone into deep hiding at the moment because if they discover her, she's public enemy number one as far as the Taliban is concerned. So not only her as a Christian and, a, and, a, and a, you know, a professional Christian, but there are others also um, who are in deep hiding now just simply so they can survive because if they discover they're dead. Um, the, the funny thing is there are some who uh, have been wanting to leave and haven't been able to. They're talking about Christians now. And then also others who've decided to remain for the sake of the gospel because they don't want the, the church to die completely in Afghanistan. So these are the people we're helping. These are the people we'll find a safe place somewhere in Afghanistan for. And then we'll also then help them set up with industry so they can become self-sufficient yet again and also help them to start developing more churches and underground churches, house churches, that sort of thing. Another one of the reports that we've heard is the report of uh, the Taliban going door-to-door looking for Bibles, Bible apps, or any evidence of Christianity so that people can be executed. Have you been able to confirm those reports? Yes, yes, that's definitely happened. If you're discovered with the Bible on your phone, you're executed. Yeah, that's, that's definitely happened. Part of our group, they've lost some of their family members as well. Three of their family members, as we were trying to extract the, the group that we were working with, um, were, uh, were executed by the Taliban. Is this um, sort of, is, is this vigilante efforts by individual uh, members of the Taliban or is this official Taliban policy? Look, with the, the sudden shift, um, the Taliban in the country was spread fairly thin, but they still had a hierarchy and they still would have receiving commands through that hierarchical structure. But at times people are just uh, exercising their own, I guess, their own Taliban initiative, so to speak. But it, 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 it's the it's the policy of the regime, so there's there's nothing uh, too independent about it. They collectively do this thing. Etienne McClintock from Voice of the Martyrs right there. Etienne, we could uh, we could talk about this all morning and I have so many questions that are going through my mind right now, but unfortunately we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us here again on Faith FM. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.